And so we gather together for this last message of the Together series. We're going to look at the question, why do ministry together? And I believe that Peter has an answer for us in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. And so I encourage you, if you have a Bible with us, or a Bible with you this morning, to turn it to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. And as you are turning to 1 Peter 4, I just want to give you a little bit of context of what's going on in this book. Peter is a household name in Christianity. He was one of the disciples. He was one of the chosen 12. He walked with Jesus. He had some really low moments. He was rebuking Jesus one time, and Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. He denied Jesus even though he promised that he would not. Denied him three times before the rooster crowed. But he had some really great moments as well. Jesus restored him to faith and ministry. Jesus looked him in the eyes and said, Peter, you are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter was a part of that church building process. The church started in Jerusalem and it went to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And here you have Peter writing a letter to what he called the elect exiles, those chosen by God who are dispersed in all these communities. And he names a bunch of them, one being Asia. There's a lot of places in what we would call modern day Turkey. And he's writing this letter to these people because they're being persecuted for their faith. They are suffering for what they believe in and he's telling them to hold on. It's worth it. What you are doing in your relationship with Christ and your mission with Christ is worth it. Hang on. I want to encourage you. And we pick up in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, with these words. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And whenever you read that word, therefore, you ask what it is, therefore, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, it's pointing back towards something. In this case, it's chapter 3, verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Therefore, since we have this example that Christ came and he poured himself out, that he was willing to suffer even to the point of death, we now can act. And Peter says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. That word, arm yourself, it brings to mind a military context. It brings to mind a group of people that are putting on their armor, that they're getting their weapons, that they're gearing up for battle. They are going in. They are arming themselves for what is to come. And what is to come is suffering in the flesh. For it says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that's a really interesting phrase. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, if I were teaching this passage to children, I would walk up to them and I would say, who here has ceased from sin? And you guys are smart enough to know not to raise your hands. (laughs) But when you ask a group of children if they want to raise their hands, you instantly get five that go up, right? And then you walk over and you go, do you want to go talk to mom? And their hand goes down. Because they know. We know. We know our own experience. We have not ceased from sin. All the things that we do not want to do, we don't always not do them. Sometimes we still do them. So what is this passage talking about? 
about. These who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. Peter's saying those who have made a choice to follow in God's will, who are going to put up with persecution, who are going to put up with suffering for whatever may come, are no longer bondaged to sin. They've had some level of victory over it because they can put it aside and move ahead. And those who are willingly suffering for the gospel have experienced some level of freedom in their life where they can put this behind them. And that gives us a purpose in verse 2. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And this gives us our first reason why we do ministry together. We do ministry together so that we will flee human passions. Now you might look at those first two verses and say, I don't see anything about ministry there. I don't don't see anything about that. I see this going towards the will of God. But what is the will of God in our lives? The will of God in our lives is that we would look more like Jesus. That we would be conformed to the image of the Son. What does the Son look like? The Gospels tell us that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. You see, we have this modern-day context of our life where we have our spiritual life over here, we have our work life over here, and we have our personal life over here, and they should never meet. And we can operate one way here and one way here and one way here, but the New Testament, the Bible, doesn't speak anything of that. No, your life is for the will of God. And so we do ministry together because we need to go toward his will and we need to free human passions. What does that mean? What are human passions? Let's look at verse 3. It says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, Peter is a Jew and he's writing to a largely Gentile context, but he's using this word in a very specific way. He's referring to the Gentiles as people who are not part of the people of God, right? And so the time has surpassed for acting like people who are not a part of God would. And we know that the Gentiles have been brought in, that there is one people of God now. But he's saying the time for your own human passions, you've had enough of that. You've had enough time to live for yourself. You've had enough time to live for the things that bring you pleasure. It is time to live for the will of God, And then he lists some in verse 3. He says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. Now you might read that list and you might go, "I, I haven't been cleared of all those things yet. God's still doing some work on me in some of those areas. That's why we're here. We're all a work in progress. But even more dangerously, you might read that list and go, check check, check, check. I'm good. I'm not doing any of those. But that's why these lists always contain a catch-all. This last one is lawless idolatry. Now, when Peter is writing to this particular place, they would have had idols everywhere. They would have had statues of gods and demigods and all these things that they would come and bring their sacrifices to and they would worship and praise, hoping that they would get good luck and good blessing for their lives. They would have them on the street corners and in their homes. You say, I don't have any of that. 
There's no prayer flags in my house. I'm not bowing down to a statue anywhere. And I would say our 21st century idols are so much more stealth. They look like little balls we kick around a yard. They look like a little paycheck that comes every couple weeks. They look like that promotion at work that we just have to have and we give everything for. It looks like the lifestyle that we want to lead and the group of friends we want to go. You see, our human hearts are idol factories, as John Calvin said. We make them out of everything, and everything that we put in front of our God is an idol. And you and I do this on a regular basis. And Peter is calling us towards the will of God because we need to flee that. We need to leave those things beside. We need to get rid of that influence in our lives so we can pursue God's best for us. But you see, Peter is brilliant. He understands how hard this is going to be. We don't leave things in isolation. It's not like we just wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to leave all that behind. It's going to be simple. No, we have relationships that we have these things in. And it gets really messy to leave some of them behind. He says this in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. They go and they look at you and at first it's just kind of like, whoa, you're not making that decision. You're not going to come out with us? You're, you're not going to come and do these things? We, well, we've always done this. Why would you not come? Why would you walk away from that? And they're shocked and then their shock moves into anger because they feel like you're being condescending toward them and you're, you think you're better than me? Like, you, you, who do you think you are? You think you're all Mr. Righteous now? You're going to go and make these decisions? How dare you leave us? And they begin to slander you and gossip you, trying to get you to come back in to these things that are human passions. I experienced this away while I was in school. We had a group of friends, and we would gather together, don't laugh, every year for the NFL draft. That's all we wanted to do. We wanted to watch the NFL draft. We got up early Sunday morning back when it was on, mostly on one day, and we would watch that thing all day long. And we would, we would have games that we would play about who would get picked. It was, it was awesome, right? You're like, man, you're a nerd. That's okay. We loved it. We did this year after year after year, but one year we went. And early in the afternoon they decided, well, we want to leave the apartment. We don't want to be here anymore. We want to go someplace else. And they all chose to go to an establishment that I just didn't feel was right for me to go to. So I had this choice that I had to make. And I said, hey guys, I, I just don't think I can go. I, I think if you guys go, I'm just going to pass. I'll go, I'll go home. And at first it was like, ah, that's funny, Trius. Come on, you're coming with us. You know you're coming with us. I was like, no, no, seriously, you guys go. Have fun. I, I, I just don't think I can do that. You think, you're, you think you're better than us? You don't want to be with us? We do this every year. You don't want to come. Who are you? I remember getting in my car and going home and mowing the lawn. You guys know that time where you're mowing the lawn, you just have that time to think, and I'm going back and forth, back and forth. Did I make the right decision? In my heart of hearts, I knew that I had made the right decision, but it was hard. You knew that relationships might be forever altered. Peter's saying they're going to malign you when you walk, make these decisions to walk away from human passions. But in verse 5, he tells you why it's worth it. He says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We will all have to stand before the Savior one day. 
and our lives will be on display. And in that moment, you will understand how temporary these situations are. When you choose to walk away from them, it might seem like a big deal now, but in the light of eternity, being with God, it will be a very small thing. And how much better is it in this life to live with God now in his will than for your own? And in verse 6, he says this, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Who are these people that was preached to even though they're dead? These are believers who were preached to when they were alive and they accepted the gospel and they held on to this promise. And they walked away from human passions and they pursued the will of God and they have now died. Whether they died of natural causes or they died from suffering at the hands of other people, they now have experienced the judgment in the flesh that has given way to being in the spirit with God. And if they could come back and communicate, they would be able to tell you that it's worth it. Hold on. Do God's will in your life. Walk away from the things that will keep you far from him. The reason why we do ministry together is because it puts us towards God's will and it helps us flee human passions. The second reason why we do ministry together, and we start in verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, if you have watched a TV show probably 20 or 30 years ago, and they had a a preacher on the screen, you probably heard him say this verse, right? The end of all things is at hand, right? He's trying to scare you into making a decision. Now, I don't stand before you today trying to scare you at all. But I am telling you that this verse is true. The end of all things is at hand. It's God's word. And Peter wrote this in the first century. We're living in the 21st century. We are so much closer now to Christ's return than Peter was when he wrote this. We should wake up and take this seriously. The end of all things is at hand. We are called therefore, there's that word again, to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. What does it mean to be self-controlled, sober-minded? It means singular focus, clear minds, not losing your mind. There was an event that happened in our country a couple Tuesdays ago. You might know what it was. And I made the mistake a couple days before that of going on this thing called Facebook. Have you heard of it? (laughs) Yeah. And on Facebook, you know what people were doing? They were losing their minds. And whether they were on the right or on the left, they were just scared and mad and angry and frustrated and people were lashing out at other people and they couldn't even control their responses because they were straight losing their minds. Peter said, we are living in chaotic times. We are living in tumultuous times. The end of all days is at hand. Be singularly focused. And then he gives us some instruction in verse 8. He says, above all, this is the most important thing. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And we have our second reason for doing ministry together. Ministry turns our hearts towards one another. 
Peter, as one of the disciples, got to hear Jesus day in and day out. And one of the things that Jesus said to Peter was this. They will know that you belong to me by the way you love one another. There are so many one another's in scripture. It's impossible to ignore that part of this Christian life is about the way we treat one another. And here in this verse, he says, love one another, right? All you need is love. It's going to be great. It's going to be happy. It's going to be fantastic. And then you look across the room. And you realize there's probably people in here that you don't really get along with. And there's probably people in here who annoy you and you don't like. Maybe you've actually had a bad experience and you realize that even in this room amongst the family of God, it is remarkably tough to love one another. Paul understood this really well. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, when he is writing out what it looks like to live in our faith, he gets to the people of God and he tells them, Don't be angry with each other. Don't slander one another. Don't lie. Don't steal from one another. Don't use bad words. Don't let the sun go down when you're angry. Why is he having to say all these things? Let's be honest for a moment. He's having to say all these things because we do them. We don't always treat each other very well inside the church. How does Peter, or how does Paul deal with that in Ephesians 4.32? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is why Peter writes that love covers a multitude of sins. When we realize that we have been forgiven of so much, think about Peter, of everything that he had been forgiven for, and he's able to write down, no, we need to turn around and forgive those around us. It becomes a little easier to love. When we are not holding things against one another, when we are forgiving one another, it is so much easier to love one another. And when we minister to each other in this way, it turns us towards one another. In verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, each week when you come in here, we try to show hospitality. You know, maybe you get greeted in the parking lot by a green vest. You guys have seen those before, right? You come to the front door and there's a couple people there and they open the door and they say, hello, welcome to fellowship. You come in, you grab some coffee because it's a little cold day and maybe you need to wake up. I understand, I've already had two cups. You get a cookie, or if we're honest, you get seven cookies, okay? But we want you to come in, we want you to feel like family, and we know it's hard sometimes to feel like family, but we want you to feel like the family of God because that's what you are. That's part of hospitality. But when he writes about hospitality, there's other things he has in mind. You see, they didn't have nice buildings for them to go to, for them to come and worship. No, they met in their homes. You would have church going on in homes across the city, and that is a great thing until you realize that people don't always leave your home when you want them to. 
that sometimes they'll just stick their head in the fridge and grab something even if they haven't been invited. They didn't have fridges back then, but maybe they just grabbed some olives. I don't know. Sometimes they bring their kids over. Sometimes their kids break things. Having people into your home requires sacrifice. It sacrifices your time. It sacrifices your money. It sacrifices your affections because you are pouring out yourself onto others. It's another type of hospitality. Having people into your homes who do not live where they are, you would have itinerant preachers who would come into the area and they would come to build up the church and you would welcome them into your homes. You would let them eat your food and drink your, drink your water, drink your wine. You would encourage them and build them up so that when they left your house, they would leave better than when they came. This is hospitality. But hospitality costs us something. Peter knows that. That's why he ends this phrase by saying, without grumbling. We know what the grumbling is, right? We've all had people over to our house. And for the three hours before they come over, you are frantically running around, trying to put everything back in the place where it goes, making sure everything looks great, making sure everything's picked up. You probably aren't even talking to your spouse anymore because you guys can't even look at each other without getting in a fight. And then all of a sudden the doorbell rings and you open the door and you have this smile on your face. It's been this way the whole time. Having people over can be hard. I'm not the greatest at this. But this is our call. Our call is to get together, to love one another enough that we will open ourselves up to them. To do it without grumbling. Because when we bring people in, it turns our hearts towards them. And then in verse 10, he finishes... As each has received a gift. Notice it doesn't say if you have received a gift. If you are in Christ, you have received a gift. Some of you have experienced what those gifts are in your life. Some of you have not. In fact, I took a spiritual gifts assessment just a few weeks ago. I hadn't taken one in a long time. And they sent me an email and I printed it out, and I did the numbers, and I added everything up, and I was like, okay, yeah, I I see these things. If you've never taken a spiritual gift assessment, let us help. We can send you a quick email. You can be running, and you can help discover how God has gifted you. And why has he gifted you? He has gifted you to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. You see, we have this creative God who has given out a diversity of gifts to his children. We don't look alike. We don't sound alike. We don't smell alike. We don't think alike. Some of us have gifts of mercy and compassion. Some of us have gifts of wisdom and knowledge and teaching. Some people have gifts of administration and leadership. And the beautiful thing about the body of Christ is he brings all of us together as one body so that all of these different gifts, this diversity in the body of Christ, can be a unified, singular body. 
Because when the church of Jesus Christ is unified in pouring out their gifts and serving one another and loving one another, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are called to serve one another. We have not been given gifts so that we can better ourselves. We have not been given gifts so that our station in life can be improved. No, we have been given gifts for that person sitting to your left and your right, that person sitting in front of you and behind you. We have been given gifts for each other, and it is time for us as a church to figure out our gifts and to exercise them for the building of the body. There's one final reason why we do ministry together. Peter concludes this section in verse 11. He says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Notice what he's doing there. The person who gets up and talks to you in your small group, in the small group leader training, when you guys have just a group of men or women that gather around coffee or at a Bible study table, when someone speaks to you from God's word, they are not supposed to be speaking to you their good thoughts, the best things that they have. No, they're supposed to be speaking the words of God, the oracles of God. We are making much of God's word when you serve one another, when you show hospitality, when you bring people in, you are not serving with the strength that you have, with the scraps that you can pull yourself up and do. No, you are serving by the very strength that God has given you to pour out on other people. And this is so important, as Peter shows in the rest of the phrase, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The reason why we do ministry together is because when we do ministry together, God gets the glory. We do not do ministry so that we will look better. We do not do ministry so that our church will look better. We do ministry so that God gets the glory he deserves. That we show him to be who he is in full. when we pour out our gifts, when we love one another, show hospitality to one another, when we serve one another, when we are living for the will of God and not our own human passions, God looks great. And that should be the driving desire of our hearts. And so we have a choice. We have a choice to make. We can live for the will of God or we can live for our own human passions we can live for one another or we can live for ourselves. We can live for God's glory or for our own glory. Now we have spent the last little bit looking at God's word and being taught and being trained that God wants us to be about his will He wants us to be about one another and he wants us to be about his glory. And so that is an easy choice to make. But we have to accept the role. When I was in high school, I was taught the book of Esther at our winter retreat. And I was taught to look at the book of Esther as a movie. 
And what happens in a movie, you have characters, you have actors and actresses that play their roles. But before the story plays out, there's this thing called a casting call that happens. And actors and actresses, they come in and they read lines and they act out the parts and the directors say, I think this person would be best and they offer them the role. Would you like to play the role of whatever? And that actor or that actress has the ability to say, yes, I want to step into that role or no, I'm going to go do something else. And then you find these characters in the book of Esther in chapter 4 and an edict has been put out there that all the Jews are going to be destroyed and Mordecai is, is really scared that that's going to happen and he turns to Esther who he believes is the only way out for the people and he comes and says, God has put you in this position and you have skills and experiences and all these things and you have influence. Go before the king. Save us. Step into that role. And Esther says, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You're asking a lot of me. That's a potential lot of suffering I'm going to walk in. You see, the king hasn't really wanted me for a few days, a few weeks. And if I go in and he does not extend that scepter to me, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer in the flesh much. And I think about 1 Peter 4.1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with that same way of thinking. And Mordecai is trying to prep her. And he looks at Esther. He says, how do you not know that God has put you here for such a time as this? That God has gifted you and equipped you and given your background and your experience and everything that you have up to this point to go and step into that role. And we love that phrase. It preaches really well. It's motivating. But I don't want to lose sight of what Mordecai says next. You see, he tells Esther that he thinks she has been put there for such a time as this, but he says, if you do not choose to do it, Help will come from another place. What tremendous faith. And I believe that is our calling today. I believe that God has put you wherever he has put you, in whatever city you live, in whatever school you attend, in whatever place that you work, in the neighborhood that you reside, in the family that you live in. God has put you there for such a time as this. He has equipped you, given you background and resources and everything that you need, every spiritual blessing in Christ to be about his will and his glory and his kingdom wherever you are. But it's a choice. He doesn't need you. And he doesn't need me. Because someone else will do it. But in his great grace and his great mercy, he chooses to want to delight in you and delight in me. And he has offered us every spiritual blessing if we will walk in him and flee our human passions and run toward his will when we run towards one another instead of running toward ourselves, when we choose to do this for his glory and not ours? Will you choose to go there with us? So that the end of 1 Peter 11 will be true about us. To him belong glory 
and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the giver of every good gift and that you have given us Jesus. And by trusting in his life and his death and his resurrection, we may be saved. But Father, salvation is the beginning. We have this entire life that we get to live with you, living for your will and for your passions and for your glory. And I'm reminded of Jesus when he looked at the disciples and said, the harvest is plentiful. Father, the ministry harvest out there is plentiful. There are so many people in Topeka and Shawnee County and in Kansas and the U.S. and Romania and India and Ethiopia and all over this country there are so, or this world. There are so many places where the harvest is plentiful, but you say that the workers are few. And you instructed your disciples as you instruct us to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may send his workers into his fields. And Father, I pray for us as a church. Father, I pray that you would stir by your word and by your spirit in the hearts of men and women who are here. That you would not let them rest until they choose to live for your will and not their passions. Father, help us to be a people who run toward one another. Father, help us to care more about your glory and your kingdom than ours. Father, may we love you and honor you with the way we live our lives. May we go where you send us and may we do what you give us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.